0: Decentralized energy is going to be a major driver of new jobs. The the, the 80% of the new jobs and clean energy that will come in India uh, in the coming decade is going to come from rooftop Solar. So if you're a politician interested in getting votes, because machines don't vote for you, people do you should be looking at decentralized energy as one of your bets.
1: And that was Dr. Arun Nabak Ghosh, who is an international public policy expert, author, columnist, and institution builder, and our guest in today's episode of the Power for All podcast. The Power for All podcast is a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. And at least for today, I'm your host, Christina Skirka, founder and CEO of Power for All. Uh, Today we'll continue looking at trends with the decentralized renewable energy sector for 2022. And I'm super excited to have with us Dr. Ghosh, the founder and CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water based in India, which has grown into one of Asia's leading policy research institutions and is amongst the world's top climate think tanks. Dr. Ghosh conceptualized the ISA, or International Solar Alliance, headquartered in India and is also a founding board member of the Clean Energy Access Network. He has co-authored four books and has served on the UN's Committee for Development Policy. In 2020, the government of India appointed him co-chair of the Energy, Environment and Climate Change Track for India's Science Technology Innovation Policy. He is also co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Clean Air among many other roles and accomplishments. So for those of us joining us for the first time, Power for All is a global campaign of over 300 partners around the world, including CEEW, dedicated to ending energy poverty faster. At Power for All, we believe that everyone should have access to the opportunities and the quality of life that comes from access to reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy. As a 501c3 organization, Power for All depends on the generosity of listeners like you. So please consider supporting our work at powerforall.org slash donate. So with all that introduction, let me just say that Dr. Ghosh is not new to the Power for All family. Our most recent collaborations uh, have included work on powering jobs. And we've got some great findings, which we might get into discussing today. Um, But today, let's just start with hearing a little bit from our very amazing uh, guest today. Welcome, Dr. Ghosh. And let me just tell you how honored we are to have you on our podcast. How are you doing today?
0: Hi, Christina. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. And of course, we've been partnering with Power for All for many years. So it's always exciting to talk to you and your colleagues. And I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: Oh, yeah, fantastic. We had a great time uh, doing that panel together at COP26. So, um, look, I I barely scratched the surface of your accomplishments, even though that was probably the longest intro for any guest I've ever done. Um, So let me just start by asking you, what drove you to start CEEW? And maybe just walk us through a little bit about, you know, how you got to this position you're in today.
0: Well, interestingly, we are having this conversation exactly 12 years after I wrote the concept note for CEW. And that was happening just a month or so after the Copenhagen climate negotiations, uh, where I, like thousands of others, was kind of stuck out outside uh, the meeting halls in, the, in sort of minus five degrees Celsius. Um, and, and of course, we all know that the uh, outcome wasn't uh, what we had all desired. I was at that time an academic in Princeton, and uh, I'd been away from India for a long time. And um, I I thought, you know, we need to do something differently, of course, the world as a whole, but India also. And I felt there was need for thinking about public policy um, driving a very different kind of change. Um, so I wrote up this concept note, imagining an institution that would be based in India, but would analyze the world, would have a global outlook, would try and break the silos, uh, even within our space of energy, water, climate change, development, uh, gender, um, governance, uh, and and most importantly, stay independent, that we would advise governments across the world, but we would stay independent. So that was the motivation. But I have one more motivation. I was uh, in, in my early 30s at that time, and I wanted to make sure that our organization reflected the dem- the demographic trend in India, which is that we are the world's youngest country of its scale. More than 60% of our population is under the age of 25. And I wanted a think tank to be and look young um, uh, and uh, wanted it to be a platform for young folks to build careers in public policy. So those two motivations to kind of Drive sustainability in a different way, and create a platform for careers in public policy. Got me to get it started.
1: That's a fantastic background. And and are you finding that? Like, tell us a little bit about CEW today. How big are you? Tell us about the diversity of your team and the youth of your team.
0: Well, uh, I have of course gotten twelve years older, but uh, our median age our median age remains under thirty still. And uh, we are now, from what we were a team of one 12 years ago, we are now a team of 149 um, as of today. Uh, so, yeah, it's grown big. We've had a a, a lot of uh, impact in some of the most transformational policies and, and, and actions that India has taken on the clean energy front, on, on climate negotiations, the Paris Agreement, the Kigali Amendment uh, to based on HFCs, um, the uh, announcement around net zero, um, uh, the creation of the International Solar Alliance, but also back home, the, the, the need to connect this to people's lived reality. Um, we uh, conducted the world's largest survey on energy access, and I am uh, quite proud to say that our data, consisting of millions of data points, uh, help to inform the policies that then drove India to uh, get connections to nearly every household for electricity or get uh, clean cooking energy to more than 80% of households. So, you know, you when you see that impact of your work, uh, you know, impacting literally uh, hundreds of millions of people in some ways, uh, you feel that you've, uh, you know, at least onto to something uh, important We've got to make sure we like to say at CW, we're to keep raising the bar, but we also have to stay grounded. So um, we have to make sure that we uh, keep our eye on, on the people that we are trying to serve.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's really insightful. And, you know, I just want to touch for a moment on uh, the number of youth in your organization. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, when we did our panel, you and I, at uh, COP26, on jobs and livelihoods. Uh, We actually had a representative there from Student Energy, and uh, that's a hot topic, which is how are we actually bringing in the next generation of talent into this space? I mean, we all know, right, that there's a need for essentially endless numbers of companies to help drive uh, the transformation of our current energy system into one that's more renewables based um, and certainly where there's access for everyone. And the youth are critical to that. So what's been your secret to attracting young people to your organization? And I guess, what lessons might have you learned about how to really not just bring them into the organization, but to mentor them into to be the leaders of tomorrow?
0: Christina, I believe that um, institution building, which is a question I ask in every job interview, what does institution building mean to you? And people, of course, have different views on this. But for me, it's about uh, people, process and purpose. Um, as I was saying earlier, you know, I, I, I was clear about the purpose of why CW had to be created and the process is the how, but the who is really about the people, right? And uh, for me, and I tell my all my colleagues all the time, I, I, don't, I don't have an MBA degree. I, don't, I didn't go to HR school or anything. I have only one rule of HR, which is that the welfare of your subordinate is, uh, comes before your own. And if every manager, you know, even if you are a very young research analyst, but you're managing an intern, uh, if you follow that rule, and that rule that just, you know, follows all the way to the top, um, then we we can create a culture where everyone feels that the person they're reporting to is actually looking out for them and has their back. Um, That's, I mean, I don't know if that's some secret sauce or that's just the most, you know, uh, evident thing that we should all be following, but we've tried to follow that. Uh, it's important to attract and uh, the best and the brightest, but even more important that you that they feel that this is a place that they that they own, that they can shape it in their in their image. Mm.
1: No, it's very well said. And uh, there was a book I think thirty or 50, forty years ago that came out called Servant Leadership, and that idea of helping other people be the leaders that they have the potential to be i think is just a magnificent way of of looking at our teams and um so that's very well taken thank you for sharing that um but but on hope right which is usually what we associate younger people with as well um look we're we're now in the third year of this pandemic right so it's brought heartaches a lot of people including yourself have gotten very sick um people have lost loved ones jobs you know it's been incredibly difficult all around the world Mm -hmm. so we're optimistic obviously hoping to start 2022 a little bit differently um and and many of us think that that this opportunity to you know what everybody calls build back better which i like to say building forward Mm -hmm. you know is this going to be an inflection point now for the sector you and i champion in terms of renewable energy and I'm, i'm curious what opportunities do you see for renewables to step in and really help to, you know, get that forward momentum build forward into the economy and the society we want to create?
0: First of all, we have to recognize that the the pandemic is something that as you were saying has touched everybody and and if you extend that logic The same happens with climate change. Unfortunately, the problem we've had for the last 30 years, since the UNFCCC was uh, first drafted, is that broadly the rich feel that they can escape and the poor have hoped that they can adapt. What the pandemic has shown us is that there is only one planet and there are only that many places you can run to. Um, And when a global shock like that touches everyone, in some way or the other, of course, the richer people can... For better healthcare, uh, the point is no one is spared. The climate crisis is already here, and no one will be spared. And I feel this is why the the phrase you used, "infection points," as it happens, it's the is the title of my monthly column, uh, is that we have to recognize that we are all in this together, and therefore, then if you have to uh, transpose that with Um, you know, what's the way out of this? Renewables then becomes not just a technology story, not just a finance story, not just a job story, but all of it. It becomes a story about jobs, about growth, and about sustainability. Um, Just, uh, you know, two or three days ago, we released our latest report uh, where we estimate that with... um, the very aggressive renewable energy targets that India has set for itself uh, for this decade. Uh, We already, um, for your listeners, just to put that in context, uh, when I started CEW, we had less than 20 megawatts of solar in the country. That was the same year when the National Solar Mission began. Now we have over 101,000 megawatts of solar and wind, and small hydro uh, with large hydropower. We're at about 155,000 megawatts. But India is now planning to get to 500,000 megawatts of non-fossil energy by 2030. Basically, we're building out, or we plan to build out more renewables than our entire electricity system is today. And it's already the world's fifth largest electricity system. Now, that's the kind of inflection point that we can tap into. But equally with that comes the jobs opportunity, that we can have a workforce of more than a million people by the end of this decade, when right now, uh, about 110,000 people or 111,000 people work in solar and wind energy sectors. So a tenfold increase, a fivefold increase in, in your capacity, a tenfold increase in in the jobs that you create, you know, going from 10 or $15 billion a year to $40 billion a year of investment shows that you don't have to only be an expert on energy or climate change to realize that this is one of the sectors, it's not the only sector, but this is one of the sectors that's going to drive a very different future for you, whether you are a political leader, a policymaker, or an ordinary citizen. So now the question is, how quickly do we internalize it and act on it?
1: Well, and on that, I'm just going to address the elephant in our virtual room here, <laughs> if I may. And uh, obviously during COP26, there was a, a sort of collective global intake of breath when when India you know, worked with China to change language and commitments, right? So instead of phasing... Uh, out, we're phasing down uh, fossil fuels. So it, it just seems like a bit of a paradox, right? Between all of the progress that's been made in the country, but then what was shared on the global stage. Can, can you give us any insight to understand what happened there and, and help us, I, I think, get grounded in in how much of a concern this is? And this obviously also connects to the pushing out of um, of commitments as well uh, to, I, I believe it's 70 years in the future or something like that. Could you just speak to that? Because I know so many people were disappointed and confused and, you know, really struggling to understand this seeming conflict between this incredible dedication to solar in the country and yet this very public disappointment at COP.
0: First issue is that the language around phase down had already been decided between China and the United States um, before the final day. So actually, India was only articulating what had already been decided, but because India articulated it on the final day, it sounded as if India was the one introducing that language. That language had been introduced by China and the US had agreed to it in their bilateral deal with China. Um, The real issue here is how do we not focus on what was said on day uh, 13, but what was said on day one of the climate negotiations. On day one, uh, the prime minister came out and put out a vision where, as I was saying earlier, we would go for 500,000 megawatts of non-fossil capacity by the end of this decade. Um, We would go for a billion tons of reduction in emissions. we would go for 45% reduction in emissions intensity of GDP. Uh, and uh, we would also have 50% of electricity capacity coming from renewables. Now, it's important to just unpack this before I come to the net zero story. 500,000 megawatts of renewables by the end of this decade effectively means that if you and I ended up chatting right now for, say, about an hour, during this hour, India should deploy another 10 and a half megawatts of renewables. And every working hour, six days a week, 10 hours a day, six days a week, 52 weeks a year, for the next nine years, we have to deploy 10 and megawatts of renewables. This is a breathless marathon that we have to be on, and yet we've committed to it. Um, even the emissions reduction the 1 billion tons of emissions reduction basically translates to 3% uh, from the baseline during this decade, uh, or less than a decade, when the largest um, industrial nations together over the last three decades have reduced emissions by only 3.7%. Which brings me to the twenty seventy point. we did a lot of work at CW on net zero and the modeling of the pathways. The 2070 story is, I believe, the is already an aggressive and yet uh, uh, an achievable goal, which also embeds the issue of climate justice. Despite getting to net zero 20 years later from the global average, and the whole point about an average means that Everybody does not need to get to the end point at the same time. You don't run a race where everyone wins the race exactly the same moment. You average it out. The planet needs to be net zero by 2050. That means many of the larger polluters should get to net zero before 2050 and some others should get there after. But despite getting there after, India will still have emitted 59% less emissions than China, 58% less emissions than the U.S., and 49% less emissions than the European Union. Climate change only matters in the context of how much greenhouse gases are there in the atmosphere. So we've got to look at the countries that, in terms of the absolute amount of emissions they're putting out. So even if it is taking longer to get to net zero, if India is emitting far lesser emissions than the other three largest polluters, then it has won itself the space to develop while staying consistent with what the planet needs. Which brings me back to the whole question on coal. Uh, As I was saying earlier, we already have more than 150,000 megawatts of um, renewable energy capacity compared to the about 190,000 or 200,000 megawatts of coal capacity that exists. But over the last six years, every single year, investments in renewables have beaten investments in thermal power. And this story will keep going ahead. So what will basically happen is that we will have a plateauing as we've seen for the last three years, a plateauing in the coal uh, use in the electricity sector there might be a year or a quarter here or there where suddenly there'll be a spike and then there'll be a dip but broadly it's it's already a renewables game now bigger question is what kind of renewables how do we get go from large scale renewables to more distributed renewables to using renewables to charge your electric vehicles if you use renewables to produce green hydrogen for your heavy industries. We've got a, it, It's no longer just a kind of vanilla and renewable story that's going to unfold in India. It's going to be much more uh, diverse in terms of the way the market will evolve.
1: Hmm. Well, I have to say that, uh, that gives me comfort to hear that description. I, I actually haven't heard anybody describe the evolution of these statements at COP that sent such shockwaves around the world. In in such, uh, I think a well informed and holistic point of view, and I, I'm sure that's going to be comfort to more listeners than just me here. But but I do want to pick up on the sort of innovation that we're seeing in India, and you you know you for example mentioned uh, e mobility and e vehicles and that sort of thing. I mean everything that we've seen. You know we just every year we do our trends report, and uh, one of the biggest trends that came back from uh, sector. Point of view was around e-mobility and the role of decentralized renewables specifically in supporting that. And uh, everything that I've read said that basically two and three wheelers are the growth market for e-mobility, particularly in countries like India. So, what are you seeing on the ground? Uh, and, you know, from this perspective of innovation and renewables and decentralized renewables, what are you seeing happening with e-mobility in India?
0: You know, uh, again, if we before we think about e-mobility, we've got to think about mobility. So in about two and a half years ago, we ran a survey across the country, um, a pretty large survey, asking people how do they move. And uh, your listeners would be interested to know that 60% of Indians, their primary mode of mobility are their two legs. Urban India moves on its legs, so the mobility transition in India is going to look very different from the mobility transition in, say, Los Angeles. Right now, what we have to do is make sure that when that you know uh, human power is replaced by a mechanical power um, or or electric power. That we are choosing the right mobility modes. So what we need to do is look at you know public transport and make that electric. Then look at the three wheelers, which is also a mode of public transport. Then look at the two wheelers, um, like the scooters and the motorcycles, which um, those who can afford you know uh, uh, the uh, uh, motorized transport first buy a two wheeler before they can afford a four wheeler. And then think of the electric mobility story of the four wheelers. So that's the, we call it avoid, shift, improve. So avoid the need to move long distances. So that means your designer cities, how easily accessible your work is, your home is, your school is, your hospital is. You reduce the amount of mobility requirement, shift to cleaner. Uh, uh, to public transport rather than private transport and then improve the source of power of energy, which is that you go to electric. Now, if we followed that kind of a mantra, then we can imagine that you can have distributed energy uh, driving a lot of those solutions because then you're not thinking about a hulking big electric SUV that needs to travel 500 miles. You're thinking of a fairly small um, two-wheeler running on an electric battery that can be quickly charged from a decentralized um, energy system. And then you can have, even within cities, you can have pockets and islands within which you can have a self-sufficiency of how the power is generated, how the power is distributed, and how it is consumed, how you're even balancing the power between what the home needs at one point and what the vehicle needs at another point of the day. So you are reducing the need for the batteries that are needed. Instead, you are playing with the efficiency of the system and and its ability to respond to different demand needs. So it's that kind of creative approach that, you know, the form needs to follow function and you design your energy system to follow that function, that combination of energy need and energy use uh, in, in a bespoke way that meets the... Requirements of a, of, of a citizen of a developing country like India or a developing country like Kenya and so forth. That's the way I see the, 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 the market will unfold. Now, just one more thing once you do that, then you actually also open up opportunity for entrepreneurship in a much bigger way because you're not then thinking of just the large balance sheet firms that can manufacture a big car or can manufacture a big battery. You're thinking of many, many smaller firms that can innovate with apps for back, for charging, uh, finding a charging stations, that can innovate with battery swapping, that can innovate with different forms of battery chemistry uh, that apply in different contexts. You actually create a, a, a marketplace for clean entrepreneurship.
1: Well, on this thread of innovation, I'm going to take this podcast someplace where we've never gone before, and I want to talk to you about green hydrogen. I understand that CEW uh, has a whole new initiative around green hydrogen, and based on what you just laid out in terms of, you know, in particular, India and city centers and that sort of creative approach, right, that isn't just about how we power, but also how we use walk us through what is green hydrogen all about in this future.
0: You know, hydrogen is is I believe going to be the the most strategic industrial fuel of the 21st century, just like oil was for the 20th century and and coal drove the industrial revolution in the 19th century. The problem with hydrogen is, you have, if you try to get it out of water by splitting water, it's highly energy intensive. So you've got to produce it um, either using natural gas um, and then try to capture the emissions that will come from that, which is called blue hydrogen, or you could be using solar panels or wind turbines to generate the power that can that you can then feed into what is called an electrolyzer that then splits the water. So that's how you produce this green hydrogen. Now, the question is, what do you use it for? Um, Today, we have, for instance, in India, we are the second largest steel producer in the world. We make 111 million tons of steel. India, over the coming decades, as its economy grows and as the global economy grows, is going to be producing about, or plans to produce about 300 million tons of steel annually. Without steel, I mean, of course, we can find some substitutes for steel here and there, but broadly, it's still a material that will be needed for our buildings and our cars and our airplanes and everything else in between. We can't make steel with renewable energy or a solar panel today. But in the near future, we could be envisioning making steel or green steel using green hydrogen, which in turn has been made from renewables. Now, today, you can technically do this. Uh, A consortium of companies in Sweden has already um, proven. And in fact, at COP, uh, I, I held a piece of green steel that had been made by these companies. But right now, it's expensive. It's far more expensive. It's almost double the cost of making steel from coal rather than from green hydrogen. So what we're trying to do in CW is look at the upstream, the midstream, and the downstream. We're trying to see what's the best technology by which you can make the hydrogen. What's the chemistry that goes into the electrolyzer? Where are the alternative materials? Who owns the intellectual property? Where? How will you make membranes that are more sustainable? And so forth. Uh, then you also need the rules of the game. How do you transport? How do you store this volatile fuel safely? What are the you know, trade rules that will affect the, the the movement of this fuel across the world. And then there is the downstream. Who will off-take it? Will it be the steel industry? Will it be the big fertilizer industry? Will it be petrochemicals? Now, when you start doing all of this, you see that what is needed is clear policy direction. So we've been intimately involved in what has recently been announced by the Prime Minister National Hydrogen Energy Mission, Uh, CW had a big role to play in doing a lot of the technical work behind the the mission. Um, And now we are looking sector by sector. We've done work on green steel. We're looking at green ammonia. Um, But even more, what what for me personally is very exciting, is my own work on what I propose as a global green hydrogen alliance, that we need the places that are doing the R&D, and the places that are actually gonna use this fuel to come together. If the R&D is happening in Northern Europe or in parts of America or say in parts of Japan, but the bulk of demand for hydrogen is gonna come from Asia or developing Asia, whether it's India or China or Indonesia and so forth, we currently don't have those rules of the game. We don't have a, a platform where the common codes, the common rules of conduct, the standards all are established. We don't have currently ways in which our resources, our human resources, our technical resources, our financial resources can be pooled to develop the technology faster and bring down the costs uh, far lower than where they are today. We uh, haven't really got the off of agreements that you make the hydrogen one place and you use it somewhere else. So. I'm right now in the process, I've already put out the idea, but I'm in the process of uh, talking to various stakeholders across the world to see how this can come through. So, yeah, there are a lot of different things happening on the hydrogen front, but I see this as the next big push. We've pushed on renewables for the last decade and we've got it to a scale where it's now a critical infrastructure industry. Now we've got to do that with hydrogen to make sure our, our heavy industries are also turning sustainable.
1: Wow, well, I have so many more questions I'd like to ask you, but we are just about out of time. And thank you so much that I think all of our listeners will be just thrilled to hear so many of your comments and learn about this process with green hydrogen. And hopefully that's something we'll start to hear more about and be talking more about all across the renewable sector. Uh, But as we're coming to the end of our podcast, uh, I just want to ask you a, a sort of closing question, which is, you know, Power for All is focused specifically on decentralized renewable energy. So here we are, the very beginning of 2022. If you had to look into your crystal ball, as it were, what do you think are the maybe top two or three trends we'll see in this sector over the course of 2022?
0: in the question in the context of the decentralized energy particularly
1: particularly yes
0: i think uh you used the phrase inflection point earlier christina i think that whether it's 2022 where where the pandemic ends or 2023 where it ends i think the end of the pandemic will be an inflection point for a serious rethink about how we design energy systems and decentralized energy systems will be a very important component for various reasons number 1 number 1 jobs every economy on the planet is hurting right now whether you're a rich country or a poor country and as i was saying earlier decentralized energy is going to be a major driver of new jobs the 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 80% of the new jobs and clean energy that will come in India um, in the coming decade is going to come from rooftop solar. So, if you're a politician interested in getting votes, because machines don't vote for you, people do, you should be looking at decentralized energy as one of your bets. Number two, energy resilience. We always talk about energy security and energy independence, etc. Resilience is the word that we have all learned as a result of the pandemic. What do I mean by energy resilience? You need a system that is not so tied down to one centralized structure that is also vulnerable to any kind of attack, whether it's a cyber attack, which is malicious, or whether it is a a, a uh, technical challenge of, of just managing um, uh, an, a, a complex electric system. And therefore... The resilience that decentralized energy can provide will be something that energy planners will have to start seriously thinking about. Third trend, business models. We were talking about electric mobility earlier and charging. We have many more business models that utilities, large-scale utilities, can follow to gain more customers and still gain revenue uh, while reducing losses by tapping into the opportunity that decentralized energy provides. Number four, the rural economy. In India alone, decentralized energy used for livelihood activities could be an investment opportunity of more than $50 billion. Um, In sub-Saharan Africa, just uh, solar irrigation pumps um, and related infrastructure can be a $12 billion investment opportunity. So this is now big money but into dispersed small projects. Um, So if we think about it this way, the job story, the investment story, the resilience story, the business model opportunity, I see these as sort of the, we are observing the start of these trends, whether they'll become mega trends in 2022 or in 2025, I don't know, but, Are these signaling that there is a different kind of energy system that can be built and that will be more resilient and be more equitable and more inclusive and yet drive more growth? uh, Then decentralized energy has to be a major part of your portfolio.
1: Well said, well said. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Um, I learn something every time I speak to you, and I really enjoy our conversations. I, I hope you'll come back on the podcast maybe next year and do another look ahead with us. Um, but it was a real pleasure having you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Christina. I, I enjoyed the conversation, too.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Well, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, mm-hmm. To learn more about our 2022 Trends Report, please visit our website at powerforall.org. And we'll see all of you next time on the Power for All podcast.